I want to invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, where we're going to spend the next bit of our time together this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 18, and we're going to go through verse 25. Uh, I just finished up session number one of a three-week class on church membership that's going on right now. So here's a plug. If you're visiting with us, interested in learning more about what it means to be part of our church, we'd love for you to join. Even though you missed the first week, uh, you missed a doozy this morning. I hate for you that you missed it. It was awesome. But it's not too late for you to jump in on this class. Uh, There's two more weeks, and we'd love to have you join us next week and for the week after. You can come talk to me if you want more information. Uh, One of the things we talked about this morning uh, was how our church... Uh, builds these weekly times together each week on Sunday mornings when we gather how we decide what we're going to do with our time together. We talked about our belief that God has spoken to us. One of the most fundamental things we believe in our church is that the same God that made us and upholds everything that is is a God who speaks and that his word to us is preserved and kept for us in the Bible. For thousands of years God has been using his power to make sure this word survives and makes it to us here in our context now. And that one way we sort of pledge our allegiance to this word of God is to build our worship services on Sunday mornings around his word, specifically around the time where we unpack part of it together and try to understand what it means and how it applies to us. The way we do that in our church is to take a book of the Bible as it comes and just work through it section by section by section rather than than coming to it with things we're already interested in and trying to mine it to speak to our needs. Sometimes we would do that, but, but mostly we, we don't do that. Mostly we come to it on its terms and try to understand what it says and why we need what it says. The fact that we do that, that we take each next section as it comes is the reason that today we're talking about slavery. Like normally, if, if, if I was coming to the Bible with a set of topics that are on my mind, something that I'm interested in that I want to bring to you and try to help you with, uh, there are going to be a lot of subjects that I just don't ever touch because they're not top of mind or they're, they're awkward or maybe I don't know exactly what I'd say about them, but we submit to God's word by just taking what comes next and doing our best to understand why we need it. And that process brings us sometimes to texts like the one we're going to consider this morning. This section of Peter's letter is a section of advice, words to slaves or servants about how to relate to their masters, and how to, how to honor God in the way that they participate in their slavery. This is a text among a few others in the New Testament that has a tragic history in our country. A text that, that at least in the way that it's been interpreted, is a, a case study for us in the danger of misreading the Bible. So friends, we're right to see in the Bible an authority that stands over us because it comes from God, because it's his word to us. Our our job is to understand it and and to obey it. It's right that we defer to it in that way. The danger for us, though, is in giving great authority to the Bible without realizing how we bring other things to it, how we bring our own experiences, our own proclivities, our own blind spots, our own sets of lenses to the scriptures and actually corrupt its message to us. So while deferring to the Bible and assuming its authority stands over us, we can sometimes be guilty of actually importing something into its message and then endorsing it or baptizing it as if it's something God said to us. Unfortunately, the passage we're looking at this morning has been a a clear, compelling case of that misinterpretation 
It was used for a long time to justify the slavery that was practiced in our country for, for decades and even centuries. And in that interpretation, it was a great example of how we can use the Bible's power for our purposes rather than submitting to it and letting it correct us. Friends, all of us are guilty of doing that. All of us live with that danger. All of us have got to be constantly working to try to make sure that the Bible is correcting us, that we're not shaping it. So we got a challenge in front of us this morning, partly to avoid doing what our forebears have done with texts like this one, bringing our assumptions to it, but also to fight past what we know about how texts like this were abused in the past so that we can actually see them for what they are and learn from them. The tragic history of texts like this one can sometimes keep us from seeing that there's good in them. The misuse of texts like this can keep us from using them in the way that God meant for us to. So that's our challenge this morning, to look at a text on slavery and learn how does it speak to us now? I mean, slavery as an institution, as a way of, uh, of, of relating, is, is not something that, that we in this room right now have experience with. I think I can say that with, with, with safety, that, that none of us in this room have been a slave. So in some ways, what Peter says to the people he was writing to doesn't apply directly to us. But in other ways, that I hope will be clear by the time we're done this morning, What Peter says to slaves in his context who were experiencing injustice in his context has powerful relevance for us in our context for all the times in which we are mistreated, treated unjustly by the people that that we live with and around. What Paul says to slaves in his context carries with it a powerful message for us for how to respond to mistreatment in a way that honors the hope that's been given to us in Christ. What Peter's doing in this letter is just trying to help his friends understand what it is they hope for because of Jesus and how their hope in Jesus shapes the way they live their lives now. He's trying to give them case study after case study of how their life now is different if they have hope in Christ. We're in a section of the letter now where he's given examples. So last week, Shaka looked at at the example of how you relate to your government if you live with the hope that Christ has given you. Today, we, we, we enter into a section of the letter that's about what, what's known as a household co- code. How you relate to relationships in your house if you approach them with hope, the hope that Christ has made possible for you. So what I wanna do today is try to help us see the powerful, life-shaping relevance of a text with a complicated history. I wanna do that by asking two questions of it. What is Peter saying about slavery? This is where we want to dig down deep and try to make sure we don't confuse his message because of how badly it's been confused in the past. What is he saying about slavery in this text? And then we're going to ask simply, what can we learn from what he's saying about slavery? I want to begin by reading the text that we're going to consider this morning. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. I'm going to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and then read to the end of the chapter, which is verse 25. This is God's word to us. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to start, friends, by just considering what is it that Peter's saying about slavery here? I mean, I mentioned already that, that that's been dramatically and tragically misunderstood. His, what he is saying about slavery has been tragically misunderstood in our own country. We want to make sure that we learn from the mistakes of the past and don't repeat misunderstandings like those that have marred the history of biblical interpretation in, in our own country. And, and we are not above it. So we're going to pray to God now, pray that he will help us to see what's here and not to bring something that's not into this text. What is Peter saying about slavery? I think it helps to know that, that what he's doing here was something very common to do in the ancient Roman world that he was part of. He's writing what's known as a household code a section of instructions to people for the relationships in their own household. Uh, he's in good company in writing a household code. These are commonly showing up in works of philosophy or ethics back in that time. So, so if you look at the writings of, of Plato or Aristotle or Seneca or Plutarch, these are famous Roman, Greek and Roman writers. All of them have in their writings sections like this one where they're explaining what kind of relationships there should be among people in, in, in your household. And the reason they're writing things like that is that they believed what I, I, we should believe too, that the household is a basic unit, a basic building block for a healthy society. It matters how we relate to one another in our households. Uh, much flows from that in the wider society. And so it's relevant and important and worthy of attention. Now, just the fact that they all wrote household codes, though, doesn't mean that they all saw things in the same way. And it certainly doesn't mean that Peter or Paul or New Testament writers who go there are just baptizing the status quo of their time. Just because they, like Aristotle or Plato, decided to, to address these topics doesn't mean that they're just funneling things that were already assumed in their time and place. No, actually, they're, they're making some radical uh, adjustments to what was assumed about, the, uh, about households in their time. They are challenging the status quo, not baptizing it. And I'm going to show you how that plays out in the next couple of weeks. This, uh, the, the slaves that Peter has in mind here would have been considered part of that ancient Greco-Roman household. Um, they would have worked on large houses or farms. They perhaps got into slavery based on getting into debts they couldn't pay for. So they would sell their labor to pay off their debts. They would sell themselves basically into slavery as a way of paying down what they owed. That was a common way to become a slave in the ancient time. Uh, another common way was to be kidnapped in war 
Prisoners of war were often brought back to their homeland and then turned out into slavery uh, for sometimes for the rest of that person's life or at least until they were able to buy their freedom, which some could do. Uh, it, it, it was a, a system very different, in other words, from the system of slavery known in our country. It's not ethnic. It wasn't a caste system, and it wasn't permanent. All that said, it was terrible. I don't want to minimize how terrible it was to be a slave in the ancient Roman world. I don't think we have to, that we should try to get Peter off the hook for going here about slavery by saying, well, slavery was just, it really wasn't the same thing as it was in our culture. It, it wasn't as big of a deal. It, it was a big deal. It was terrible. The slaves in the ancient Roman world had no legal rights. They were at the complete mercy of whoever owned them. And they were often treated with great cruelty, their lives treated as dispensable commodities. And that's what creates the challenge for us this morning when we read verse 18. And we see that Peter is telling them to obey or submit to their masters. That he's telling them to do that with all reverence or respect or even fear. And that he's telling them to submit not just to the good ones, but even to the ones who are unjust, who abuse them, who take advantage of their weakness and exploit it. What is Peter doing? Why would he write this to these slaves? Isn't he just reinforcing an evil system of oppression? I think we're right to ask that question and to think about it carefully together this morning. What is Peter saying here about slavery when he tells servants to be subject to masters, not only the good ones, but also the unjust ones? I think it helps to be real clear up front what he's not saying. And to guard ourselves against making some leaps that past interpreters of this text have made. He is not simply baptizing the status quo in his time and claiming that slavery is just one of those things that's okay, that's part of a healthy society and that we ought to just get over any concerns we have about it. He, he is not saying that slavery is acceptable or pleasing to God. He's not assuming that just by addressing it and even telling slaves to be subject. For one thing, we can't make that leap because the text doesn't. It does not say that. It may leave a lot of things unsaid, but we need to make sure we're not bringing that assumption to the text when we say that he, just because he addresses slaves, for us to then say that, that he thinks slavery was a good thing is, is to make a leap we're not, we're not warranted in making. The text doesn't go there. One clear sign that he's not just baptizing the status quo and communicating to us that slavery is a good thing that he endorsed fully as something pleasing to God. One, one clear sign that that's not what he's doing here is the way that he addresses slaves. Even, friends, the fact that he's addressing slaves here. He's writing to them. He's addressing them as moral agents, as people with choices to make. That was radically unexpected in his time. I mentioned earlier that there were other writers who had household codes like this in some of their works. Aristotle is one of these. And in one of Aristotle's writings on household codes, he said that it's impossible to commit something unjust against a slave, to treat a slave unjustly because a slave isn't fully human. They're property. So you can't be unjust towards a slave, towards your property. That's what Aristotle wrote. Not only would Aristotle not have written to slaves about how they should be the slaves, 
he would have said, it doesn't matter how you treat them. They're yours. Peter is... Peter's writing to slaves because he dignifies them. He sees them as humans made in God's image. And he's writing to them about what to do when they're treated unjustly. So he's rejecting Aristotle's view of them right there, out of hand. It's possible for you to be mistreated. Why? Because you have rights. You have a dignity given to you by the God who made you. Not just anything goes. Just by assuming mistreatment is possible, Peter is pushing back on the status quo, making a radical moral and political statement. So we need to be careful we don't assume things that Peter's saying that that he's not actually saying. He's not baptizing the status quo. He's not endorsing this arrangement. And in fact, he's pushing back on it in a subtle way. So what is he saying? Here's the thing we need to know today. And this is going to set us up for how we can learn from this text, even if we're not slaves. What he is saying is that slavery is a context for honoring God by responding to what happens to you through your hope in Christ. What he is saying about slavery is that slavery, your slavery, is a context in which you can honor God. In other words, you don't have to escape slavery in order to live in a way that pleases him. You aren't merely a victim. Now, by telling these slaves what to do when they're treated unjustly, Peter is showing us he thinks they are victims. They're being mistreated. They shouldn't be treated the way that they are. They're victims. But by dressing them and encouraging them to respond in a very specific way. He's saying, you're not just victims. That is not the sum of who you are under God. You are a person with dignity and agency. You have choices to make, even if freedom is not one of your choices. Even if you have no reason to expect to ever live in a different context than the one you're in now, still, you have a life to live and an opportunity to honor the God who made you and redeemed you. You have meaningful and beautiful and powerful opportunities even if autonomy isn't likely for you. Friends, here's the mistake we have to avoid. I think it's it's not right to expect Peter to to write a social commentary, some sort of of comprehensive treatise, if you will, on, on what a Christian society should look like on what institutions are good and and proper and true and which ones aren't. When he's writing to people he hasn't met, who've barely been Christians for any time at all, who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire in little pockets, he doesn't even know exactly where they are, who have no power and no prospects for power anytime on their horizon. Writing to those people it would be crazy of us to expect Peter to try to, 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 try to, to put out some sort of template for what society should look like. That's not who they were. They weren't power brokers. They didn't have levers to pull. That's not what they needed for him. It's unrealistic for us to expect him to challenge the status quo in, in a direct way that calls for sort of the overthrow of slavery here. It's not the letter he's writing. He's trying to help his, his people that God has trusted him with to see their situation and how to live in it in the light of Christ. He's pastoring them in concrete situations that he didn't design and he can't change. So I think the challenge for us here is to let the text be what it is and not push it farther than it goes. I think to use it 
as a justification for slavery, as so many have done in our country's history, was pushing the text way too far. It does not say that. It doesn't say this is good and right and appropriate and pleasing to God. And I think for us to condemn it today because it's been used as a justification for slavery is to commit the same exact error. It's to assume it says what it doesn't say. It is not an endorsement of slavery or some kind of statement on a Christian view of, 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 of injustice. The Bible is full, friends, of language on the importance of justice, on the importance of, of social structures and how God sees them and on how God holds societies accountable for the structures they uphold and put in, put in place and uphold. The prophets especially are full of language where God is calling on leaders in societies to make changes to how they're treating the most vulnerable and warning them of judgment that will come on them if they don't make those changes. But not everything in the Bible speaks to the powers that be. Sometimes some of this material is written to individual Christians where they are, where they're likely to be for the rest of their lives to give them perspective, to give them instructions and, and, and hope for how to be faithful where they are. Peter is not writing the same kind of letter that the prophets were writing. He has a different goal in mind. He wants these friends to know how their hope in Christ affects a situation that even though it's regrettable, even, even though it's terrible, isn't likely to change for them. Here's another way to put it. He's writing so that they won't attach their hope to some sort of transformation in society that they may not see. If he wrote to them a treatise on how to rise up like Spartacus did and try to throw off the shackles of slavery, then where's their hope gonna be? In their ability to pull that off, an impossible task for them. He doesn't want them attaching their hopes to that kind of change in their circumstances, even if that's what he wants for them, even if he wishes they could experience it. He wants their hope fixed on Jesus, a hope accomplished by him, provided for him and kept in heaven for them by his power. And he wants that hope to shape the way they engage in the society that they are actually living in. Friends, this opens up all sorts of opportunities for us to learn from people who have lived in terrible circumstances that most of us will never experience and who did so with this kind of hope. If the only category we have for thinking about the experience of slaves is pity, then we will miss the opportunity we have for learning from brothers and sisters in Christ who lived and died as slaves in our own country and did so in faith. We have a remarkable legacy as American Christians in the slaves who held fast to their hope despite living in conditions that were not acceptable, that were odious, and, and that will be judged by God on the last day. These friends lived and died in, in situations they had no power to change. And we can learn from them on how to be faithful in incredible suffering. And if the only category we have for talking about slavery is how to get rid of it, then we will, we will actually take away from those forebears some of the dignity they deserve as models for us and how to hold on in faith in our own time. Peter is not saying that slavery is a good thing, a sanctioned or God-pleasing institution. He is saying that you can please God as a slave. And he's trying to help them see how. What I want to do with the rest of the time we have here 
is, is to consider what we can learn from what Peter is saying. I mean, that's a challenge for us. Anytime we, we hit a text like this one where there's some big gap between assumptions or institutions or relationships in the world that Peter belonged to and in our own world. So none of us, I believe in this room, are living now as slaves. Unfortunately, it is still a reality in the world, something we should pay attention to and do what we can to fight back against, but, but not likely to be a reality any one of us are living with. So how can we, how can we learn from a passage that's written to slaves? Well, I think hopefully what I've said so far has helped to pave the way for us on this. Because what Peter is doing is writing to friends about how to honor God in the way they respond to mistreatment. Now, now for them, they were being mistreated as part of uh, this, this institution that we aren't experiencing. They were slaves, we're not. But every single one of us knows what it is to be mistreated, to be treated unjustly. That's because some of us are living with very palpable and real systemic injustice that affects our lives. I know that to be the case for, for, for many of you living in, sitting in this room right now. So you might start there as the most direct uh, line from what Peter's writing to slaves in his time and, and to what we experience now. But, but even that is not the only thing, the only category of person who can learn from this text. I know for a fact that every one of you is living in relationships right now where you feel mistreated by somebody, where you feel like you've been misjudged by them, where you feel like they have not accounted for who you are and what you've said and what you believe. Maybe they're mischaracterizing you. Where they're treating you in a way that, that, is, that is less than you deserve without the dignity uh, that justice requires. I'm not gonna try to script what those situations are for every single one of you. I'm gonna let you do that work. Think about it. Where are you feeling mistreated Maybe it's mistreatment because of Christian conviction. It's possible here. That's certainly what Peter had in mind. But every one of us has experienced unjust treatment one way or another, and it's always frustrating. It's painful, and it can take over your life. When you're being treated unjustly, it can take over your life. It can spread a poison through your mind and your heart throughout all of your days. It can make it tough for you to notice anything else. What Peter says to these slaves in this chapter shows us that, that in Christ, when we have the hope that Christ has, has purchased for us, there is a path, a clear and even beautiful path through mistreatment. A path that honors God when we walk it. How? How do we respond through hope? when we're treated unjustly. That's what I want to consider together with these minutes that we have left. I want to point you to four things from what Peter says to these slaves that can be applicable to us. No matter the context for mistreatment, when you experience injustice in your life, how to respond to it in hope, following Peter's advice to these slaves. I want to give you four things, four things we can learn. Here's the first one. Peter shows us that our mistreatment by others, our mistreatment is an opportunity to honor God. First of all, our mistreatment is an opportunity to honor God. That's true every single time. What makes us aliens or foreigners in the world, a theme we've been pulling out of this letter from the beginning, as Shaka talked about a good bit last week, what makes us aliens or foreigners in this world is that our allegiance is always to God above all. 
Yes, we belong to other cities or states or countries. We have other allegiances, but our highest allegiance, the one that sets us apart and makes us different from others, is that our main allegiance is to God and our main agenda in every situation we find ourselves in is to honor him, to act in a way that makes him look trustworthy and beautiful. That's something Peter's talked about a lot in this letter already, and, and he refers to it explicitly in this passage in a couple places. He says, for example, in verse 18, to be subject to your masters with all respect. You know, in a quick reading, uh, my first thought was that he's talking about respecting or fearing or reverencing the masters. Maybe being afraid of them because you don't want to be punished by them. But, but uh, what several different uh, New Testament scholars that I read this week pointed to is that this phrase actually for Peter always refers to God. So he's not writing to how, how they should respect their masters. He's saying you should be subject to your masters out of respect or fear or reverence for God. This, this gets pointed to again a little bit later. In, um, uh, a little later in this passage, you can see that, uh, that, he, that he calls on them to be mindful of God in verse 19. It's a gracious thing, he says, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So in the middle of this context where they're being mistreated by their masters, they're not paying attention to their masters primarily. Their eyes mostly are on God. They're mindful of him. What is he doing? What does he call for from me in this situation? How can I honor him? Being treated unjustly is an opportunity to, to honor the God who is your ultimate master. He is our main audience. So the first, the first and most important question for you to ask of yourself in your situation, when you're mistreated, the first thing you should be asking is not how can I retaliate or how can I make sure that person is punished or how can I set the record straight and make sure people see what's going on here? The first question, the most important question when you're mistreated as a Christian is what would it look like for me to please God in this? What kind of response from me would honor him? How can I be mindful of him here? What we're really asking when we talk about honoring God is what can I do? How can I respond in a way that will show his character, that will show his trustworthiness, that will, that will help to highlight his provision in my life? Now, friends, that, putting that question to you, it's not a gotcha question. It's not like a, just a churchy, obvious question. I think there, there are a lot of different ways you could answer that. I don't know what honoring God would look like in your context when you're mistreated. It'll depend on a whole bunch of factors that you're going to have to think through carefully when you find yourself in that situation. It's one of the great opportunities to bring your friends in on what you're dealing with and to ask them, hey, here's my situation. What do you think I should do? How can I honor God in this? It's not a gotcha question. But asking the question is huge. Asking that question as your first move, how can I honor him in this mistreatment, is how we show that, that, that my name, my reputation, my interests, they are not what's primarily at stake for me here. It's a question to ask of yourself and it's a question to ask of your friends when they're struggling. When your friends bring a situation like this to you, ask them simply, what do you think it looks like for you to honor God here? And this question sets up the second thing I think we can learn. Because it raises other questions, right? I mean, how do I go about answering the question of what it means to honor God or respect or be mindful of him when I'm mistreated? How do I know what it looks like to honor him? Especially in this context. It's the second thing I think we can learn from Peter. Our mistreatment, number two, our mistreatment is an opportunity to follow the example of Jesus. The next thing Peter takes us to is the example of Christ when he was mistreated, how he responded. 
If we want to know what it looks like to honor God, then our best case scenario is to look at Jesus, who only ever did what his father commanded, whose life whose life's calling and pure joy was to do the will of his father and who fulfilled that will at every step. So how did he respond when he was mistreated? That's what Peter points us to in in verses 19 through really the rest of this passage. Verses 19 and 20 make it clear Peter's talking about being punished or mistreated for doing good. He's not talking about being punished because you messed up or because you're disobedient or because you went out of line or whatever. He's not talking about, he's not talking about being punished when you deserve it. He's talking about being, being punished because you're doing what's right, just like Jesus was. And verse 21 says something even stronger. Verse 21 says, you've been called to suffer for doing good. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's a strong statement right there. When you suffer for doing good, when you're mistreated, treated unjustly for doing only what's right, what you're experiencing is something God planned for you to experience. It's part of God's purpose for your life. It's part of how your life comes to conform to your example. That's what he's saying. Unjust suffering is how we follow the example of Jesus. This word, for example, it's a powerful image. I had to, I had to find this in what I read this week. I wouldn't have known this ahead of time. But the, the, the word, for example, is a very specific word. It's, it's a word that was used for a, a, a model that would be put in front of a student that's learning their letters. So you think about uh, how I learned to write my letters with these like, little tracing exercises where you've kind of got the little the little broken lines around the shape of a letter and you can connect those dots or like tracing paper that you would lay down on top of a, of a page that had those letters and you would, you would follow the letter through the tracing paper with your pencil. That's the word that, that Peter's using here. So think about Jesus and his response to mistreatment as that letter that we're learning to write, that we're writing on top of it. We're following its course with our lives. You wanna know what it looks like to honor God? Here it is, right on top of this. This is the shape of a life that honors him. And following Jesus means taking up a cross like Jesus did. Often, friends, the rubber is gonna meet the road for us in our relationships. In our relationships, we're gonna have to choose sometimes not to respond in a self-protective way, but to set aside what our interests are, even our desires for other people and the way we'd be treated, to set that aside, to be punished and mistreated and still to seek the good of the one who's doing it to us. That's the example Jesus said. Punished when he didn't deserve it, all for the good of the one who punished him. But how can we do this? Where do we get the power to follow this example? That's the question that, that, that is answered for us in what Peter says next. So we've seen that our mistreatment by others is an opportunity to honor God. We've seen that, it, that we honor God when we follow the example Jesus set for us. But how do we get the power to follow that example? The example looks terrible, right? Where do we find the, the power we need to follow him? The third thing Peter teaches us here that we can learn from his words to these slaves is that our mistreatment is an opportunity to trust in God rather than defending ourselves. 
Verse 22, he starts to unpack the example of Jesus. Verse 21, he says, look, you've been called to this, you're Christ followers, and he suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow it. Then in verse 22, he starts to explain the example. He's basically going line by line through Isaiah 53. I think something that might really encourage you because it's a beautiful passage and because it shows the way that the New Testament and the Old Testament work together to explain Jesus to us would be this afternoon to take this passage and then flip over in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53 and to read Isaiah 53 and then to look at what Peter's doing. He's basically explaining it. He's going line by line through it to help us see what Jesus has done to set the shape of our lives now. Line by line, he goes there. This is what, this is what the letter we're tracing looks like. When he was mistreated, what did he do? Well, he committed no sin for one thing. He was sinned against, but he did not sin in response. He didn't lie. He didn't shade the truth to try to make himself look better or others look worse. He didn't deny. He didn't deflect. He only said what was right and true and good. No deceit was found in his mouth, verse 22 says. Verse 23, he didn't retaliate. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, well, he didn't threaten. He didn't try to come back on him. He just continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How is it that he could not defend himself? How could he just take it blow after blow? How did he get the strength that he needed to go through that? He got that strength from knowing that God, his father, saw it all. That God, his father, always judges justly. That though human history is full of injustice and though the powers that be cannot be trusted to do what's right, God always can be trusted. He always sees and he's promised a day in which all things will be set right. Jesus went through what he did, trusting in the day that had been promised to him when God would judge justly once and for all. He knew God would take care of him. He submitted himself completely to God's will. That was his only concern. So can can you see the model here? Can you see this model? When mistreated, misjudged, misunderstood, mischaracterized, our initial instinct, friends, every time, no matter who you are and how holy you are, your instinct is gonna be to come back at them. That's true on a social level. It's also true, it's maybe especially true on the interpersonal level. We want to defend ourselves. We want to set the record straight. We want to maybe take shots of our own, especially because if somebody else starts it, then it can seem like the excuse we need to take the gloves off, as if their sin against us justifies anything we might do to them in return. And friends, to be honest, we're often going to be guilty of this if never on the outside, at least on the inside. We're inside of ourselves, in our minds and in our hearts. We're constantly trying to get ourselves off the hook, defend ourselves against what's been said, or imagine a way towards setting right what that person has done against me. But following Jesus means trusting God to bring justice, not me. It's not up to me to clear my name. It isn't up to me to make sure that person gets what they deserve for the way they've treated me. It isn't up to me to defend myself. The only way you can face mistreatment and honor God following the example of Jesus is to just get out, to bow out of the game of setting your own record straight and to trust him who judges justly.
following Jesus means trusting God to bring justice, which frees me to experience injustice and not respond in kind. It also frees me not to lose hope along the way. I love where Hebrews talks about Jesus as enduring the cross set in front of him. All that mistreatment, all that injustice, he endured it all for the hope that was set in front of him. He even faced it with a kind of joy because he knew where he was headed and trusted God to bring it all about. So for us to look, to experience mistreatment now in hope means to look ahead to God's promise to bring out the truth. His promise that he sees us, that he knows us, that he understands us, that he justifies us in Jesus. We are worthy in his sight, if not in the sight of others, because of Christ. And that should be enough. Can you, can, can you see now how we're starting to answer our first question? The first question for the Christian is, how do I honor God when I'm mistreated? Well, you, you honor God by following your example. What example? The example of these verses. Don't defend yourself. Trust God who sees all, who loves justice and loves you. There's one more thing we can learn from what Peter says here to these servants. One more thing about how to respond to mistreatment with hope. When our lives are built on the hope of the gospel, when we see ourselves through what Christ has done for us, when our ultimate aim is to receive the promises that he's made to us and to see them as real in our experience, when that's our life, then our mistreatment by other people is another opportunity to rejoice in the gospel. Our mistreatment by others is an opportunity for us to rejoice in the gospel. Now, let me make sure you understand what I'm saying here. What, what, what Peter is trying to do is to apply the example of Jesus to their situation. He's trying to show them how they get to live in solidarity with him. He went through just what you're doing and what you're going through and far more. And he honored God and you can too. Just trace your life along the shape of this letter. Here's your example. That's what he's trying to do. But right here at mid-course, when he's unpacking what Jesus was and how he was an example for them for now, it's like Peter gets distracted. It's like he gets caught up in the beauty of the gospel and what it means for the people who trust in the gospel. And then he's off into describing that gospel. Did you notice this? Verse 23 is, is the example of Jesus. He did not, when he suffered, he didn't threaten. He just continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then in verse 24, he's off into the gospel. He's off the example part. And he's just celebrating what Jesus has done. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. You were straying like sheep. That's who you were. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter just gets caught up with it. As one person put it, it's as though the apostle couldn't turn his eyes to the cross for a moment without being fascinated and held by it. Yes, the cross is a wonderful example, an essential example for us in how we're to live now, but it is far more than an example. What Jesus accomplished on the cross was accomplished once and for all. It's not something we could ever do. It was his work and he did it fully. It was done for us, not just to show us a new way to respond to the pain we don't deserve, but to redeem us from the punishment that we do deserve. 
Peter in verse 24 is bringing the attention away from the sins of other people against the people he's writing to, to their own sins. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins, he says. And he did it to give us new life, driven not to sin, but to righteousness. Not just to show us a new way to be, but to give us new selves. Friends, that is the great news of the gospel. It's an offer to you this morning. I don't know what kind of mistreatment you've experienced in your life. Maybe it's been severe and debilitating even. Maybe it's hard for you to think about anything else this morning than what's been done to you. I want to encourage you gently, graciously, using Peter's words as our guide to think beyond what's been done to you and to recognize that even if you haven't deserved the mistreatment you've received, what's true of every person who's ever lived is that we have not done what God made us to do. That we've lived, chosen to live as if he doesn't exist, as if his ways aren't best for us, as if we know best what we need as if we or other things around us are more trustworthy than he is and his word and his promises. Friends, you may have been mistreated, but you have also been guilty of sinning against God. The message of the gospel is that you are more than what's been done to you. That that's both bad news and wonderfully good news. Because the good news of the gospel is that this sin against God has not defined who you are to him. That he sent his own son to live a perfect life that you were not able to live and to die a death that you deserve to die so that through trusting in him, you can be set free from your sin and live to righteousness. So in other words, that you can be who he made you to be. No matter what's been done to you, this gospel can define you this morning if you'll trust in it. He loves you. Enough to have sent his own son to die for you. And if you'll trust in him this morning, then that is who you are. But it has implications for how you respond to the mistreatment others have have done to you. Why does Peter go here? Why does he start riffing on the gospel when he's been talking about an example up to this point? I don't think, friends, that it's just a distraction. I don't think that he just got caught up in the beauty of it and got off track. I think what Peter's doing is pointing us to one more crucial dimension, one more truth about facing injustice with the hope of the gospel. Here's what I think he's trying to show us. When we're mistreated by other people, we have a chance to empathize with what it cost him to love and redeem us. The gospel tells us that we're never merely victims. We are also perpetrators guilty of sinning against God. Sometimes our sin against God is abstract and it's hard to feel the weight of it. It just doesn't feel like that's such a big deal. Sometimes we have a hard time connecting with that kind of language in the scriptures. But when we're being sinned against by other people, well, that's not abstract at all, is it? That comes with a pain that every one of us can feel feeling the pain of, of, what it, of what it is to be on the receiving end of someone else's mistreatment makes what the Bible says about our sin against God more tangible. 
And when it does, when it helps us to feel, oh, this is what God felt from me, then it makes the gospel all the sweeter. I think about how often I forget him, deny, on him, deny him, cheat on him, and feel nothing for him. I think about what, how badly it hurts when people don't see the things I've done for them and treat me as if I haven't. Being neglected and overlooked, having what you've invested in them treated like it's nothing. That's, that hurts, it's unjust, it's a kind of mistreatment. And then I think, oh, right. Every day that I've ever lived, I've treated God as if we're on a blank slate at best. What have you done for me lately? What are you gonna do for me now? I've been ungrateful for his goodness. I've been distrusting of his wisdom and his power. I've had my head turned by so many other pretty forms or shiny objects. That's unjust. I've treated him like he's not precious or wise or trustworthy. That's not right. That's not fair. And when I'm treated unfairly, when I'm misjudged, when I'm not seen truly, I'm just getting a small taste of the offense of my sin against God. Now, how did he respond to my mistreatment of him? By taking on even more mistreatment that he didn't deserve. By taking on a killable body that he could offer up for me. So that I, the one who caused his pain, could be healed, could be set free. Friends, because of the gospel, because of the hope that is ours in Christ, we can see ourselves in the ones who mistreat us. We can see that Jesus bore our sin against him so that we can respond to those who treat us poorly with the same grace and love that he's shown to us. Father, this example that you've put in front of us in Christ is beautiful to look at, but impossible to follow. Apart from your power working in us to give us what we could never create for ourselves. And so we respond now to this word by asking you to help us honor you even when we're mistreated by others. Thank you for Christ who is always for us. Thank you for the hope that is always out in front of us. Thank you that it's protected beyond the reach of any power, however unjust and powerful they may be. And thank you that with this hope set in front of us, we can endure what we endure with joy. Make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.